Our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 10. We're reading verses 32 through 52 this morning. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word. We're grateful that you gather us around it today to hear your voice. We ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Mark Knoll was a professor at Wheaton College before he went to Notre Dame. And one of the books, he's a Christian historian that I was exposed to early on, is a book called Turning Points. It's about turning points in Christian history, major points where significant things happened, and they weren't just germane to that moment, but they were points where, that were so decisive that they continued to have reverberations throughout history. 
And so Noel in the book develops these turning points. He points to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. where the church was dispersed as a turning point. There was the Council of Nicaea in 325, a turning point in church history concerning doctrine. There was the Great Schism in 1054, something we don't pay much attention to, but the church divided east and west. There was the English Act of Supremacy in 1534 that set off the start of a new Europe and a way that the church would relate to governing power. There was the conversion of the Wesleys in 1738 that deeply marked American colonial life. And then there was the Edinburgh Mission Conference, 1910, in which a group of Presbyterians began to talk about how essential it was for us to evangelize the world. Okay? Noel marks all these as turning points. He says you could find many other turning points. But the thing is, is that when you look at all these events, significant events, the world was changed because of each of the things I just listed to you. But these are only turning points because there was one decisive turning point in history. The turning point that Jesus points to in His words this morning as Mark 10 comes to a close, Jesus one last time gives the prediction, the prophecy of His death and of His resurrection. This is the third time He's now done this as He has been on the way to Jerusalem with His disciples. And He's been retraining them, reprogramming them for what they are to expect when His kingdom comes. And so in the most detail that He's provided now, He tells them that He will be handed over he will be flogged. He will be spit on. He will die at the hands of the Gentiles. And then after three days, He will rise. That this is the decisive turning point in all history. That Mark definitely has this on his mind. But why? Why is this the decisive turning point in all history for the Christian? It's this simple idea that this moment is the decisive turning point because the cross reveals the mysterious plan of God to renew the entire world. That is how momentous the occasion is. Catch the language in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Isn't that a strange description? Amazement and fear? And then what Mark goes on to relay about Jesus' words is quoting from two places in the Old Testament. From Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 53. And of course, those two places being what we know as the songs of the suffering servant. Isaiah has this beautiful collection of poems from chapter 40 through 66. Four poems about the suffering servant who would come and die for many. And then there are also a collection of poems that we typically know as the songs of the anointed one. He was the mighty victor. And strangely, what we begin to find in Jesus' life is that the suffering servant and the victorious anointed one are combined together. And in fact, the victorious one is victorious through his sufferings. And so we find this mysterious plan of God long wrapped up, now being unfurled in front of the world. 
And it was a promise that God would reconcile sinners, that He would reconcile all heaven and earth, that He would make everything right. And Jesus is saying for that to happen, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. That was how it was going to happen. That this decisive turning point had to take place. That this is how it had to play out. Now it's interesting because it's not quite clear what it means when it says that He will be delivered over to the chief priest. He will be handed over. And that's because the verb here is in the passive voice. And some of you are like, what relevance is that? I had to learn this when I had to study the English language again while I was learning another language, okay? And uh, the active voice is when the subject does the acting, and the passive voice is when the subject is acted on, okay? And many people say, well, who is the one that was delivering Jesus over? And theologians have normally called this the divine passive. Because what becomes clear from reading Isaiah 53 is that yes, Jesus was killed in the hands of evil men, but it was God who handed Him over. God who offered Him for the many. You can turn over to Mark chapter 14 and verse 21 where Jesus Himself takes us into this mystery. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. God had ordained something for the Son of Man. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And so Jesus can hold together both sides that God had ordained it this way, and yet there is human responsibility for it. That in His mysterious plan, God is bringing it to fruition because God is accomplishing something in the death of Jesus. That He is renewing the world. And Jesus brings it to a specific focus in verse 45. That this renewal involves the forgiveness of sinners. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. This notion of ransom is important. It was a payment that could be made in the ancient world when someone's life was forfeit. When someone had lost the right and privilege to life, you could pay a ransom to buy them back. You could buy them back from slavery. You could buy them back from prison. But it was a life that was forfeit. And this is what Jesus says is happening in His death. That our lives are forfeit because of sin and because our captivity to it. That no one escapes that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way is the words of Isaiah in chapter 53. It's forfeit. But Jesus pays ransom for it. That He pays the price of what was legally forfeit. He turns Himself over. He was handed over. And as we sang this morning, says the words of, of the hymn, that justice smiles and it asks no more. One of the best lines in all hymnody to me. <laughs> that in handing Jesus over, God was pleased, His judgment satisfied, and ransom was paid that could settle the price. And friends, this is the turning point in history. And the thing is, is that this decisive moment of Jesus' death where ransom is paid is to have ongoing reverberating effects into your lives even today. 
that it's not just a one-off event to know about in past history so that you can go about however you want to today, but the ongoing reverberations is that the ransom paid is to be decisive for you today, is to continue to be a turning point. And the thing is, is that for us, we can know these things, that Jesus died for sinners, that He comes to pay the ransom. But for so many of us, we labor under the illusion that we somehow need to pay interest on it or we need to give a tip on top of it. That the payment is just not quite sufficient. Because surely God couldn't love someone like us. But that is just the point. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died the death that we deserve. He goes under the curse of it. He accepts it and he pays ransom. And friends, we can't improve on it. There's nothing left to pay. And yet oftentimes with our guilt, we desire to somehow atone. Or with our works, we somehow want to earn our way into God's favor. We live with this constant suspicion that God's favor really doesn't belong to us. That if everyone knew who we were, that it would just all fall apart. But friends, the turning point of history in Jesus' death and resurrection is the death of all of that. That you don't have to carry around your shame and your sin like a dead weight dragging it behind you. Because that decisive turning point reverberates into your life today where you're set free from that and ransom is paid. That it's settled. That you're right with God. Several years ago, I was planting bushes in my front yard. It was early in the spring, and I had this hard red Virginia clay. Okay? It's like a rock. We hadn't had much water that spring, and so it was very difficult. And these azaleas were roughly 70 years old, and they had grown all tangled and entwined and not been cut back in probably 30 years. And so the only way to cure the problem was to dig them out. And that'll make some of you gasp, I know. But it was the only solution. And so I began to dig And I noticed that this was a cluster of three azaleas that had grown together into one. And so I began to dig, and I began to dig, and I began to dig. And it was going deeper and wider because the roots were everywhere. 
And so it ended where I was about two to three feet in this narrow little place trying to get under it to leverage the bush out of the hole. I'm covered in red clay and dust and mud and frustration and sweat, okay? My neighbor comes up. I was fairly new to the block, and he said to me, he said, I understand that you're a pastor. <laughs> and here I am in a hole, you know, looking up at him, the, the singing, these are the strangest dynamics ever to have this conversation. And, and I said, yes. He said, you know, I work with a guy um, who has a master's of divinity, he said, he's so cool. You know, uh, a couple months ago, we went to a sweat lodge. And he began to describe to me the dynamics of the sweat lodge. And then he said, you know, and then after that, we took some sticks and we were poking ourselves. You know, it was just this super spiritual experience in which we're poking ourselves and thrashing ourselves and sweating ourselves to death. He said, so what do you think about that? It's just thinking of all how insufficient my training was for where real life happens, you know? Um, this isn't the Romans road, like, you know, setting. And, uh, and, you know, I looked at him and I said, ouch, you know, like, <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> like, why, why go back to that? That's what my ancestors did for thousands of years. And when they heard about Jesus, they, they just ran to it, you know? My Scottish ancestry, they finally got over the, the poking themselves and beating themselves with rocks to please God. You know, it was a good thing the gospel was. And it's a good thing again today. The friends, we're not trying to work ourselves up into a spiritual frenzy in order to please God. We're not trying to purge ourselves of evil by poking ourselves. That God does that on our behalf through the cross. It's the most significant moment in world history. It's the fulcrum. It's the turning point. And it reverberates down into your lives today and you have to accept that ransom's paid for you on your behalf. And so the cross does accomplish this magnificent vertical dimension where it reconciles something that was irreconcilable, the turning point. But if that cross does do something vertical, then we need to also expect, though, that there are horizontal implications that Jesus comes into the world in order to make the world new. He comes to create a new society of people who will follow Him. Remember, this company is trailing after Him on the way up to Jerusalem. He is creating this new people, the church. And so it's important for us also to understand not only the vertical dimensions of being made right with God, but what it then means to follow this Savior, to follow this crucified One, and the shape that that gives to our lives. And I would suggest that there are two directions that we see in our passage this morning about the shape that the crucified One gives to us in our daily lives. And the first is this, what the cross does to us is that it overturns our notions of significance and authority. It's a comical story that begins in verse 35. James and John, who've gone up the mountain with Peter and seen Jesus transfigured, they come to Jesus and they ask, this is so great, teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you, okay? Blank check. Is that a good deal? And then Jesus says, well, what do you want? And they say, well, we want to sit one at your right and one at your left when you come in your glory. All right? And here's the scene. They're going up to Jerusalem, and that was where the Messiah was to go in order to fight the great battle and be enthroned. 
And so what were they thinking after they got done with the 10-mile hike that went from uh, 825 feet below sea level in Jericho to about 3,000 meters above sea level in, in Jerusalem? What were they thinking? We're going to be at the right and the left. Here's the moment. You know, they're almost giddy with excitement in this. Jesus says that they don't know what they're asking to sit at his right and left. And then it causes a whole squabble between the disciples. You know, Peter was probably feeling left out. The others were jealous that they made the request first. They're arguing amongst themselves. And then Jesus reworks the notion of what it means to have authority and what it means to be great inside of his kingdom. Listen to his words again. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that the cross affects the horizontal dimension by reworking our notions of authority and significance. The disciples thought that to sit at the significant positions of right and left hand when Jesus came in his glory to claim those positions for themselves, to be seen as great in the world, Jesus in his glory and victory, that that's what a meaningful life would be about. Jesus turns it all upside down, puts it on its head, and says, no, a great life A meaningful life is one that's spent in servanthood. It's being a slave. It's giving yourselves to others. It's pouring out your life. In fact, there's a clever play that further accentuates this. They ask to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus. It's actually an odd grammatical phrase that shows up in that request. And if you turn over to Mark chapter 15 you find that odd phrase reappearing. It's in verse 27. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Do you understand now why Jesus said you don't know what you ask? To be at his right and his left is to die with him. It's to be a sacrificial servant. It's to give your life in ransom to others. It's to pour out your life in all those sacrificial ways, getting over worldly significance, getting over worldly ways of doing authority. Because in the kingdom of God, we're not opposed to a greatness and we're not opposed to authority. It's just a particular kind of greatness and a particular kind of authority. And so we have to seek to sacrifice ourselves, not just selfish promotion for our own ends. And so the big questions become, how do we know when we have a real problem with this? We can think through it and go, wow, it's beautiful. The idea of someone serving us, of someone giving themselves for us, that that can compel us to live that kind of life. But here are the challenges and where, how we know we have a problem. It's when we chafe at serving and when we find certain things beneath us, then it means we're not quite getting the new society that Jesus wanted to set up because he wanted to set up a culture 
that reflected the cross in all of its morals and ethics, in all of its way of life, that there is nothing beneath us, and that servanthood is not just something that some people do. That servanthood is a way of life that works itself through everything, whether we're in the home or in the workplace or in the church building. That servanthood is that way of life now defined by the cross. That's Jesus' new society. And a second way that we know we have a problem is when it chafes us that people treat us like servants. You know, it can be wonderful to serve people and have them thank you. And then it can be awful to serve people and not be thanked. And we can go off in a huff and a puff and say, well, I'll never do that again, ungrateful people. But is that what Jesus really wants to accomplish in our hearts? No. He suffered and died for a great number of people who have no sense of thanksgiving, no sense of joy. We resist that so much in daily life. We don't seem thankful and grateful that the heart of a servant is one who simply serves, not on the basis of the response. Several years ago, a young couple asked me to perform their wedding. And at that season in my life, it was a big request just because I had several other weddings I was doing and that involved me in their premarital counseling, which involved several hours and, um, and just the way the couple's schedule worked, it meant nights out from the family. And so it's always been a joy for me to do that, but I remember in that season, it was coming at a particular cost. And they were also asking me to travel for a weekend uh, away to perform the wedding. They had been coming to the church for some months. There seemed to be some spiritual life and change happening. And so I was eagerly, kind of hesitantly, a mix of a lot of emotions, jumped into the, in, into the premarital process with them, agreed to do the wedding. Premarital goes well. Wedding goes well, which was a small miracle. It was outdoor wedding. Um, outdoor weddings are amazingly complicated, uh, just FYI. <laughs> and then they returned from their honeymoon and were at church and were congratulated by the church on their wedding. And then I didn't see them. Saw them once six weeks later and then never saw them again. And I remember sharing with Melissa just how it felt, how angry I was that they had treated me like this, that they had done this to me and to the community. You know, that they had asked us to serve them at great cost. And then they had the nerve not to come back. And in my own frustration, I began to realize that, yeah, there's a certain kind of servanthood that I like. And then when someone treats me like a servant, I don't like it at all. And that was revealing the unworked place, the untilled soil in my own heart about God working this vocation of servanthood into me. And He wants to work that into all of us, that we lay down our lives for one another, for our kids, for our city, that that be the whole entire culture that's leavened inside the church. That's the new society that Jesus is creating. So this is the first piece of what the cross does. It undoes our notions of significance and greatness. 
And the second is, is that the cross overturns our self-sufficiency. That it's going to work a new kind of sufficiency into this horizontal society. And we find this in the story of Bartimaeus. It's really an awesome scene. It seems like a pretty simple healing miracle of Jesus. But I remind you back once again that this entire section from chapter 8 to chapter 10, there was a healing miracle in chapter 8 where Jesus healed a man that He had to touch twice. And now He heals Bartimaeus who runs up to Him and He says, your faith has made you well. Bartimaeus sees and then follows Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And that Bartimaeus is here for us the model of discipleship. But the details of the encounter are important. Jesus was passing through Jericho. It is essential to remember that this was the Passover time. And so we know that roughly one million to two million Jews were probably on the road to Jerusalem. And there was one way to the city, and it was through Jericho. And so hundreds of thousands of people are walking. Okay? It's a pretty festive scene as they go up to celebrate Passover, the most significant moment in the Jewish calendar. Bartimaeus begins to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He hears that Jesus is around, so he begins to cry out, have mercy on me. And what do the crowds do? They rebuke him. They try to keep him silent. The irony is found in the psalm that we read this morning. We read Psalm 123, which if you look in your Bibles, it's classified as a song of ascents. Okay? The song of ascents were the songs, they were the traveling songs of the people of Israel when they were going up for festival. And so what were these hundreds of thousands of people singing? This is the hymn book. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The people are singing this, they, or they've just sung it, it's just been on their lips, everyone's traveling on the way up. There's only 14 of these songs. Certainly they know the words, and here is this blind man crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they're trying to silence him. To shut him up. He's making a scene. This is inappropriate. Jesus calls him and he gets up. He leaves his cloak behind. Which is a remarkable contrast to the rich young man that Jesus met last week who wouldn't leave behind his goods. He runs up to Jesus. Jesus asks him, what would you want me to do for you? And the man says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. He asks Jesus with all his new creative powers, the fresh powers of creation that would visit him in the dead to raise him from the dead, to come into his life, that he would regain his sight. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The man believed that Jesus was able, that Jesus was sufficient. He recovers his sight and follows him on the way. And friends, Bartimaeus is a paradigm for us of what it means to be a disciple. That in the Western world, we do thrive on a self-sufficiency. 
And I hate to think that many of us would be silencing Bartimaeus, finding it slightly indecent that he was crying out with such desperation and messiness. And the thing is, is that that is just where God would have us as a community. It's crying out to him in Bartimaeus' desperation and need. A community shaped by the cross who sees the cross as the turning point of all history, that this is God's healing breaking into the world, comes to him with this kind of pathos, believing that he's the only hope, that he is the only way it can be made right. He's the only way our sins can be forgiven. He's the only way there is of healing. And friends, that's a different kind of community. You can have one that's prim and proper and knows it's psalter and can sing, Lord, have mercy on us. The Jews were certainly doing that. Or you can have the messy spirituality of the blind man on the side of the road. Son of David, have mercy on me. Saying the same words, but owning them and believing them and trusting that the one he was looking to for healing and forgiveness and new life could give it. That's what the cross accomplishes. Friends, it changes everything. It is the turning point that decides every other turning point in history. Jesus comes to die. He comes to rise. He, co he comes to make a new world in the power of the resurrection. It creates a new kind of society that He wants us to inhabit. So let's embrace that. Not self-sufficient, but Jesus-dependent. Not lost in games of authority and greatness, but servants who give themselves to each other. That's the work of the cross.